Hi, folks. I'm Jason, and welcome to Filmography Club. Today, we continue our season-long mission of covering the English-language work of Denis Villeneuve. And in this episode, we're talking about Blade Runner 2049, the 2017 film directed, of course, by Villeneuve. Screenplay by Hampton Fancher and Michael Green, and is the sequel to Ridley Scott's 1982 retro future noir Blade Runner. Today, I'm joined again by Ted Ringeisen. You all know Ted. He's been on the podcast several times before, including last episode where we discussed Arrival. Ted is a Los Angeles-based filmmaker and cinematographer, and we're old friends who love talking about movies that we love, which you're about to hear us do. So now I present to you my talk with Ted Ringeisen about the 2017 retro future noir, Blade Runner 2049. Joined by Ted Ringeisen. Ted, good to see you, man. You too, Jason. Twice twice in one month. Yeah, I mentioned in the last podcast that you were only getting one episode, but you're pinch hitting for us. We no had a, a, we had a, a scheduling snafu with our last guest, so thank you for, yeah, for coming no through for us. Appreciate it. Happy to talk about this movie. Yeah, in fact, we went off on a tangent. I edited out probably 20 minutes of us talking about Blade Runner 2049 from our arrival episode because you and I just got sidebarred and we went off and I remember just I deleted like a whole probably 20, 30 minute swath of our conversation. Oh, wow. Because it was all Blade Runner. Big old movie, Blade Runner 2049. Denis Villeneuve's second science fiction film, at least from his English language oeuvre. I'm going to ask you about, we're going to try our best here to not get stuck in the mire and just talk about the first Blade Runner and Mm. comparing the two. But I think we do have to mention it every now and again. It's, sure. These two movies seem to be in conversation with one another, so they are somewhat intertwined, but you uh-huh. really don't necessarily need to have seen the first Blade Runner to appreciate 2049. That's true, yeah. This movie does what good sequels do. If we could start our conversation out, tell me about your relationship with Blade Runner vis-a-vis Blade Runner 2049. What's what's your relationship with the Blade Runner franchise in general? Sure. I always remember seeing like, the VHS cover in movie th- in movie stores. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Cause it was like the, um, there's so many different versions of Blade Runner. There's like four different cuts. There's like the theatrical and then the director's cut. And there's the, about five, five or, or six. Five, I think, yeah. I think. yeah. Yeah. And the one that I had seen initially when I was a kid, I think I was about 10 years old. Uh, I remember my dad just being like, yeah, this is a cool movie we should watch it. And then at the time I kind of started to get into at that age, that's when I was like really like honed in on movies. Cause it probably started when I always loved movies when I was like seven. That's when I realized like, Oh my God, I want to make movies uh, seeing Jurassic park. Cause I was like, this is holy shit. You know, I didn't know movies could be like this. And then, you know, the years following, that's when I really kind of started to like notice names that would pop up in things that I liked a lot, like producers' names or directors' names in particular. I always am like hesitant to say this, but seeing the first Blade Runner changed my life in a way. Like I had never seen a movie with like the science fiction dressing be so like boring in a way, it, boring and beautiful in a way, and have music like that. And it really did. I, I remember it was late at night when we started the movie, and my dad had fallen asleep, and I was just glued to the screen. And the version that I had seen, I think it was called the director's cut. 
Yeah, that uh, was early 90s. Yeah, early 90s. About 10 years after the release, I think. Yeah. And I was, there wasn't any of the voiceover in it. And then later, like years later, I was like, oh, I want to watch that again. And I think I had seen like a friend of mine had a copy of it and it had the voiceover. And I was like, what the fuck is Yeah, that's there? the theatrical like, it was, cut. It was bizarre. I know some people prefer that edit. I, I always thought it sounded kind of clunky. It, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. And then like later on, I think in like the early 2000s, they came out with the final cut, which was pretty much the director's cut only with uh, like it was like remastered or whatever. I think there was like they... Uh, change the bad wig in the scene when the the snake dancing woman smashes through the window. They like right. CGI her head onto something. You couldn't even notice it. But it was so good. But yeah, I mean, like Blade Runner was just, I had never really seen anything like that before. Uh, and then the sequel comes out. What was it? 2015, 16, 17, oh, 17, 17. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, oh, that director at the time, I, I wasn't really familiar, but I was like, oh, it's that director. He's doing it. That should be good. But I remember the trailer being like kind of like rock and roll. Like I was like, uh, I hope like the studio isn't like revamping this thing and doing like a soft reboot or whatever. I hope it's still like boring. And I put it off going to see it. And friends of mine were like, how could, how have you not seen that movie yet? Like we always talk about the first one. And I think it was the last week that it was in theater. Cause I remember being like, Oh, like people were like, Oh, it's not really doing that well at the box office. And I was like, all right, I got, I gotta go see it. So I, I went to the universal city walk theater. Uh, cause they had an IMAX there for some reason it was still playing there. And I was like, Oh, fuck it. I'll go see it there. And in the movie theater, there's really only been, maybe three or four times to where I was sitting in a theater and watching something that I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. Like to where you forget that you're, it's a, it's a weird emotion to put into words. It's like one of those things where it's like, it was like seeing Jurassic Park for the first time where I was like, you know, like my breath was taken away. That's the power of cinema. The power of cinema where it was, I was complete, like, I think the the only times that that's really happened to me were, like, Terminator 2, Jurassic yeah. Park, yeah. Fellowship of the Ring, and um, in parts, uh, um, Mad Max, Fury Road. But For I, sure. I yeah. more, Mad Max was more of a thing of being like, this is so fucking awesome, and it's everything that I wanted the Mad Max movies to be, so it didn't really show me anything I hadn't seen before in terms of, like, I don't know, worlds and, or something. I, I didn't really, I got that like, oh my God, I'm going to see this 10 times feeling. But with right. Blade Runner 2049 and like Fellowship and, um, and and to an extent, Infinity War a little bit, the first Avengers, the, the or not the Of the two part. Yeah, I know what you mean. The third one. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were moments in that where I was like, wow, this is so epic and I'm feeling the power of cinema. But Blade Runner 2049, I mean, there were, it was so refreshing to watch a movie that you were like, this is a work of art, set design and cinematography and the worlds and everything and the music, the sounds and stuff. It was so powerful watching it, uh, going in without really any expectations and then um, enjoying it more than the first one. <laughs> uh, I know that might be sacrilegious to say, but I, I do think, A, it's one of the best sequels ever made. 
and it I might like it. I think I like it more than the original. I definitely I, I do. I do like it more than the original. I, I do too. And that's not to say that I dislike the original. No, not at all. The original's all. great, but it's more of a vibe. There's very little plot. I mean, if you yeah. remember at the very beginning, Deckard's boss lays out the whole movie for him. Yeah. Hey, here's yeah. the four. You need to find them and kill them. And he goes, okay. Then we just watch him do what his boss told him would right. happen. And then credits roll. And, and he's not as interesting as a, of a character as um, the guy that he's hunting. No, uh, he's a very dull character. But I, I think that's kind of the point. I think that's kind of baked into the theme of the movie. Sure. But yeah, he's it's a detective noir story, but it's in the future. It's like this retro future. Uh, there's not a lot of detecting going on in this no, detective story. There's that like seemingly 30 minute long zoom enhance scene. Yeah, right. Enhance. Yeah. yeah I, that I don't just, have a problem with that as much, mostly because I was like, oh, he's actually detecting. Right. But that's you the know, one time in the movie where he actually detects, whereas the new movie just takes all the stuff that worked from the first one, gives us more of that. And then it yeah. looks at the stuff that didn't work and just chucks it. Yeah. I love yeah. it for it. It it does what a perfect sequel should do is that it brings in the familiar, but then builds on it with new things. It refines it. It refines it. It expands the world. It's a powerful movie. I it it still holds true to that slow pace. There's so many scenes of Kay walking around looking at shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little, maybe like two minutes too many, but um, I'm fine with it, man. I'm I lo- fine I love with the it too, vibe. Yeah. It's it's just this specific feel that yeah. these movies have that really no other modern films have. I can't imagine many executives in Hollywood are anxious to go back to that well. I think the movie eventually wound up. It was considered a failure at the box office. Yeah, I, but I, I looked at the numbers well, and it but... did turn a profit from its budget eventually. I guess worldwide and. Maybe home release is baked into that. Sure. Yeah. People weren't lining up by the millions to watch people talk for two hours, yeah. like for yeah. north of two and a half hours. Right. I mean, it's there's not a lot of action. And if you distilled the movie and you shortened it and you just trimmed out all that atmospheric stuff with, you know, Kay walking around looking at stuff, mm-hmm. you'd have a brisk movie. You'd probably have yeah. a good, not quite two hours long yeah, where a lot of plot stuff is happening, but I, it's one of those things too. It's like I hate the. I I mean I understand that Hollywood is a it's it show business. You know it is a business. Sure. To refer to this movie as a flop, it's it's like one of those things that's like that has such a a stigma to it because it's uh, everybody that's seen this movie that I know you know like loves it or or they're like wow that movie was really great. You're lumping a like when you call it like a when we call it like a flop, it made a shitload of money. Right. It's just that it cost a shitload of money and they marketed the shit out of it. So it's like when I think a lot of times when people hear like, oh, it was kind of a flop at the box office, it's like, well, so is the first Blade Runner. And right. everybody fucking talks about that movie now. You know, like there are movies out there now that are like big successes. I forget about them. Like Red Notice on Netflix was the biggest, highest streaming. Nobody's fucking talking about Red Notice right now. No, you know, like, no one's cosplaying. People still talk about the original Blade Runner. People still talk about this Blade Runner. You know, not that it's that old, but yeah. it, it's like one of those things where it's like Hollywood, Hollywood just needs to stop making $200 million movies. They just need to stop doing that. Give every movie like a 90, like every blockbuster, like a $90 million budget, you know, and then just 
Maybe. Then they wouldn't. But, be, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's I don't a whole know. fucking wormhole. But I'm looking at the budget for this movie, and it's estimated that it's somewhere between 150 and 185 mil. Right. You, you see it on the screen. Oh, absolutely. Every it's, it's every beautiful. dollar. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to chop. Yeah, but I mean, chop the budget. I wonder right. if that factors in like uh, advertising costs and all that shit. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. They they may um, have lost some money on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because you know, you you go back and you watch even movies from the '90s, and you're like, yeah, they only had a fifty million dollar budget on this, and it's like, but there's real cars exploding, there's real camera work happening. You know, like I understand that, like. Right. Things go up, prices go up on things, but I could watch a 200 million, like the new Spider-Man movie. I enjoyed it and it was probably a $200 million movie. It looked like a cheap piece of shit with like decent fucking CGI in some places, but I didn't feel like I was watching a $200 million movie. You know, you just know that it is that much. I actually was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Let's talk about uh, the themes of this movie. And again, we're going to have to talk about Blade Runner, the first movie, the the 1982 film. Because again, these movies kind of are in conversation with each other. The theme, and correct me if I'm wrong, the theme of the Blade Runner films, both of them, is the question, what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. What is humanity? What does it mean to truly be alive? And the theme of the first film, I think, what I have always taken from it was, isn't it ironic that this human who is real, Deckard, seems to be more robotic and less less alive than these quote unquote fake humans. Mm-hmm. They seem to be appreciating life in a way that this real human does not. Right. I think that's the theme. Yeah. Ridley Scott disagrees. I respectfully disagree with Ridley Scott. And yeah. I think he doesn't understand the movie that he directed because when you imply that Deckard is a replicant, a replicant then you yank yeah. the rug right out from underneath the theme of the movie that you directed <laughs> just because you had some some extra, extra uniform footage, footage yeah. laying around from when you shot legend and you realized oh that was an origami unicorn at the end and oh that implication now means that deckard is a, that's stupid whoever talked ridley scott into that i think he talked himself into that yeah ridley scott does not understand the movie that he directed i know what a what a claim that is for sure yeah no <laughs> I know what you mean, though. There's, He's there's, much more accomplished than me, and what have I done, and blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is that when Ridley Scott tries to write, he just kind of muddies the water. He, he it, confuses he, things. He has a great eye. I just watched The Last Duel. It felt real and authentic. Yeah. The guy's an amazing director. I'm not taking away from that. His movies are fucking beautiful. They feel lived in. They feel alive. He does not need to be making plot decisions because he does yeah. not. He's. I don't think that's why God put him on Earth. Yeah, I mean, the the guy wanted to make a sequel to Gladiator for God's sake. So, and yeah, if you've ever heard the the idea that they had for that movie? It sounds fucking ridiculous. Please tell me. I, it's something about like Russell Crowe's character in the afterlife. Like it. It's fucking bizarre, dude. Like oh, it's no. just like, what are you talking about? And yeah, like. I mean, he did it with the Alien franchise where it's like with Prometheus, 
it's interesting to know that he's he's had the idea of going back and finding out more about the space jockeys since the early 80s and like the sequel like he originally wanted the sequel to be about that but again it's like you're overthinking the lore of alien what makes alien scary is it's alien and we don't understand it like we don't need a fucking prequel to explain and even the prequels make zero sense they look great there's interesting ideas in them but it's like when you tie it into the franchise it's stupid so it's like it's like the original blade runner like is deckard a replicant no he's not you know, like it's like no. You had extra no. footage. From Philip K. Legend. Dick says no. The screenwriter says no. Yeah, it, it's just he had extra footage, and years later he came up with that idea because he was thinking about it too. Yeah, much. and it's a nice coincidence that he had leftover footage of the same creature that the final origami right was representative of from Legend. That's that's yeah, that's a neat little coincidence. That doesn't mean you have to shoehorn in that. Right, exactly. Blade Runner is for for as great as it is there's not really a perfect version of it out there. Mm-hmm. There's, there's the international cut. There's the, the theatrical cut, uh, you know, the, the directors and the so-called final cut, which I say so-called, it'll probably wind up being the final cut. I think that's yeah. as close as that movie gets to being its perfect version of itself. Mm-hmm. If you can just get up and go to the bathroom during the unicorn scene, as long as you don't see the live action unicorn, it's, I'm not going to say a flawless movie, but it's as close to perfect as Blade Runner is capable of being, not having seen all the stuff that wound up on the cutting room floor. Right. This movie, Blade Runner 2049, wisely sidesteps the issue of is he or is he not a replicant? K, our protagonist, is flat out established before we even get a good look at him as being a replicant when we get a shot of the uh, dashboard, I guess, for his vehicle. Mm -hmm. There's a little thing down in the bottom right. There's a screen that that establishes that this guy is a replicant. And it also sidesteps the issue of whether Deckard is too, because spoilers, Deckard is in this movie. And it doesn't matter. He can be, or he maybe he's not. It doesn't matter for the purposes of this story, which I think was one of the stronger decisions that they made. Agreed. Yeah. Ridley Scott is an executive producer, so you can't exactly contradict what he shoehorned into the film, into the lore, but it also does not embrace it. Mm-hmm. I think Nyander Wallace makes one or two offhanded comments about Deckard that sort of insinuate that maybe he is, mm-hmm. but it's never just flat out laid out, which... right. Good. Uh, as long as I can ignore that, I'm I'm fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. This is a superior film in every way. It's longer. I feel like this movie kind of earns it. it. It doesn't feel long either. It, it never really drags for me. Like I, I mean, it is a two and a half hour movie, and you're one of the few people I've ever heard say this. By the way, Ted. So please, what's that? <laughs> yeah, say some more because I've heard most people's complaint about this movie is that it is too long and that, is that it's too long, too slow. I mean, it's very slow. And there are scenes where um, I think, you know, like the one scene in particular that always kind of I'm like, this can be shortened because it goes back to what you were talking about before of Ryan Gosling's character, Kay, just walking around looking at things. It's the scene when he finds the toy horse. And I mean, that scene goes on for like five fucking minutes and like he holds the thing and then stares at it for two minutes and the music swells. It's like, OK, like this yeah. maybe could be cut down but it's a big character moment for him so i'm fine with letting it breathe and but i mean with the movie a i don't mind slow if i'm engaged 
I like a lot of what you would consider boring movies, but I'm engaged in what's happening. And whether it be, you know, the story matched with the visuals, the visuals themselves or whatever, like this, never this movie never really feels its length for me. I'd call this movie slow, but I wouldn't say that it drags. No, it, do- it doesn't drag. It um, moves at the pace. I feel like it probably ought to move at, which is slow. Admittedly, is slow. So that's, that's not for everybody. And it's right. long. And it, it fits, it it feels like a companion piece to the first movie, which is slow and it's slow pace. So it's like, if you're going to make a movie in this world, you kind of want to set the tone, you know? So like the first movie kind of sets the tone. It's like, it's bleak, bleak science fiction, and it has a slow pace. Okay. You know, so if like, if you were to make Blade Runner Fury Road, you know, as the sequel, people would be like, this doesn't feel like Blade Runner, you know, like the vehicles are the same as the, like you want to match the tone of the first one and then add 30 minutes to it, you know, <laughs> but right. uh, I mean, reason. I'm fine with it. Like there's things in it that um, I guess the one thing that is sort of left unresolved, but it's a good world building thing are the androids that are kind of having the uprising, the ones that have like, that mm-hmm. are one of them being led by the woman, the woman android that, he removed the eye from right and there's kind of starting that resistance it's like yeah, oh yeah. the replicant the, freedom movement the yeah. freedom movement and it's like oh that's interesting and i could see if they had intended to make a sequel to this movie that maybe they would have gone on something with those characters so it's like in terms of this movie it's like oh that kind of feels like you could make the movie without that but it it's interesting because it it's world building sort of thing. And it's not really important to the main plot of this movie. So maybe that like some of those that like subplot could have been cut out, but it's so interesting. It's such an interesting idea and it ties in with the themes of the movie about being more human and stuff like that. So it works for me, but I guess if, you know, if you're trying to make the argument like this movie's too long, okay, then maybe that subplot could have been cut out. It's, I don't know, like it works. It, I'm fine yeah. with a long movie if it earns it. There's a four hour cut of this movie out there. Is there really? When he first cut the movie together, he was like, yep, uh, well, this movie's four hours long. He, he understood you cannot put that in a theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he also understands that he's not going to put it on Blu ray either. It's it's not going to be available ever. He, he said that he's. Yeah, that he's not going to show it to anybody, but it's it's out there. That's such a bummer, too, because this movie has gotten such a crappy uh, home video attention. The Blu-ray that I have, like the menu looks like something that I made in After Effects. You've got the same one that I have, I'll bet. Yeah, it does. It feels it feels super cheap. Yeah. And like the special features are just like 10 minutes long. And some of them are kind of interesting. They didn't bother. Go ahead. I was just, but especially the ones with what a workshops team talking about them shooting the models, which is another thing that I love about this movie is they use models um, for the cities. And there's a lot of CGI, which is like, man, top of the fucking line. I mean, there, there's only one shot in this movie where I'm like, oh, that looks kind of CGI. And it's not the world. It's the, uh, the elements. It's when he, cr- when Kay crashes, his cars when he gets shot down and when he gets shot down and he hits the dirt right. the dirt is the only thing that looks kind of cgi to me mostly because it's just like yeah dirt and fire and water are hard to make look real in movies as human beings we automatically know yeah that doesn't look right you know um, right 
Yeah. It's like fluid simulations, but everything else, especially the scene when he's the scenes where he's flying through the city or in the junkyard, like using miniatures and models for that really just, it just looks better, man. Like, it, it always looks better. It looks real. It, it creates a sense of depth and scope that I just don't think CGI can really accomplish. You know, like, I mean, there have been movies where it's like, wow, that looks incredible, but it, Something like tangible about the way light hits objects that just makes miniatures look bigger and better. Agreed. Yeah. And it's actually the same miniature uh, DP. His name's Alex Funky from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. The Bigatures. Yeah. The Bigatures. Yeah. Same, yeah. same theme. But yeah, he did all the miniature photography for Lord of the Rings. I did not know that. And it's Weta Workshop. It's a lot of a lot of artistry behind the scenes of this movie, which is on full display when you watch in every frame of the movie. It's um, so packed it. with information. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the first one of the, the the first moments of the movie, the opening moments, where Kay is flying over the. I guess he's flying over protein farms. Yes, or he eventually gets to the protein farm where Sapper Morton. AKA Dave Batista. Who's really good. <laughs> he really is. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, well, the opening sequence of the film, when he's on his way to Sapper Morton's protein farm, we get a shot of his dashboard. And it's a super quick shot. The, the, the camera only holds on it for like one and a half seconds or something. But there's a little bit of information presented there that, that tells us a lot about who's piloting this vehicle. Off on the bottom right-hand corner, there's a little, little monitor there that says, you know, K and then like his full his full name, which is sort of like a serial number, I guess. Yeah. That K is short for. Yeah, it tells us this guy's a Blade Runner. Also, he himself is a replicant. And if you missed that little dashboard thing, Dave Batista's character says that, right? He's yeah. like, How do you feel about killing your own kind or something? So that yeah, there's no right, debate. Right. And then I think the following scene is people in the police department calling him skin job. Yeah, him walking back. And that th- this movie really <sighs> trades in the, the the world of this movie. The implication is that it's, you know, the, the, the caste system is still in play. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of class stuff going on, mm-hmm. the way women are sort of treated as, uh, you know, joy. Joy is a product. Yeah. I mean, we call joy a character, but one of the most, one of the big turning points in the film is when our protagonist, Kay, realizes joy was never really alive to begin with. Right. And that's that's something that I thought was super interesting about this movie. I'm interested in the nature of consciousness, what it even is. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly no expert on it, but I love what the first film was trading in. What does it mean to be alive? Are these bioengineered replicants actually alive? Which is to say, are they just programs that are meant to be reactive to what humans are giving them? In which case, they're not truly alive. They're just really elaborate programs. It's kind of like that episode of uh, Measure of a Man from Next Gen, where they talk about, where they kind of give human rights to data. There you go. And then you've got Joy, who is basically sort of like Scarlett Johansson's character from yeah, her. She's like Siri, but right. Really she's, she's Alexa that's in love with you or is programmed to act that way. And I think that that's, that's what Joy is. The lights aren't truly on. There's not mm-hmm. really a consciousness there. She's more of what they call a narrow AI. It's, mm-hmm. it's an artificial intelligence. It's more of an extrapolation of 
there's general AI and then there's narrow AI. And general AI is a being that's truly perhaps alive, something that can learn on the fly, can take in new data and then process it in a way and react to it in a particular right. way. And then there's narrow AI, which I guess you could say if you've got a computer that you play chess with, that AI only knows how to play chess. It'll never learn anything else. Its only function is to be able to play chess against humans. Right. That's it. And I think Joy is sort of a jumped up version of that. Whereas the replicants, I think they are alive. I think the lights are on. I think that there's mm -hmm. actually consciousness going on in there. And this movie does a lot to explore that. It, it, you know, it took, I think this was the third time I've seen this movie and I didn't quite put together that the prostitute that has the, was that a threesome or was it not a threesome? Yeah. Whatever. It's an interesting scene, whatever it is. Yeah. That, that uh, prostitute, she's, uh, it took me a couple of watches before I realized, oh, she's a replicant too. That's I thought right. she was human. I thought we had a human, a replicant and, and a narrow AI hologram sort of kind of having sex yeah. together, but no, there was not a human involved in that at all. She was, yeah. she's a replicant. Joy also kind of serves the function as the voice of the audience as well, because a lot of times Kay is explaining to her. There are scenes where he's working, like he's investigating or he's detecting something and uh, Joy will pop up and sort of ask questions that the audience might be asking, like, what are you doing? And not so much like, what are you doing? Like not word for word that, but right. he's explaining to her, so that in, in informing we, the audience member of um, of what is is it transpiring in the scene, you know? But yeah, I mean, she, it, her character I, goes beyond just the sort of like, like the pleasure bot role that in that world she has, you know, like, because she is emoting like real feelings and stuff, which is interesting because I mean, spoilers, she gets smushed and every time that scene happens, I'm like, oh, like, because I mean, Ana de Armas is she's always just great in everything that she's in. Like she has this like spunk and humanity to every character that she plays. And in this, it's no different. I mean, like the scene, um, which I think is one of the most gorgeously photographed. I mean, I'm sure we can go on and on about the cinematography in this movie, Um but the scene where he takes her out on the rooftop and she feels the rain for the first time. And yeah, I want to talk moment, about that. Matter of fact. Yeah. In that moment, you really feel like, oh, wow. Like you forget that she's just a hologram sort of thing. And then she freezes and you're like, oh, man, like it's like cold, hard reality. Yeah, the in. cold hard reality. She's having of it, a it, very human moment right there, where yeah. she's free for the first time to leave the confines of this tiny apartment. She's seeing the bigger world, and it's she's getting quote unquote wet, you know, as the right. rain comes down really through her. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And then she has that makeout scene, and yeah, then just like, right in the middle of it, yeah, it's, it's a phone like, call, you know, <laughs> a voicemail. Yeah, like, and first, I wonder if there's a. a thing that i'm missing with that every time his phone rings on joy's little thing it's peter and the wolf it is i was wanting to bring that up too but i have no idea what the significance is I, I don't know what the significance of that is either um it makes sense you know like it's like oh this is in this world this yeah. tone pops up you know and you hear it uh in the scenes when he's in the city you can hear it in the mix mm -hmm. all around 
it, it's like when human like human emotions or like human reactions are applied to K or Joy or any of the like artificial characters, it immediately reminds you in moments like with her freezing, you know, like and, or like pausing. It's like, oh nope, these are not real. These are not human beings, but yet they have the most human scenes in the movies, you know, like yeah. Um, and it, it it makes it hard, like like because whenever it's I don't know, like I find it such an interesting character dynamic and an interesting thing to put in a movie, like a character like Joy, where you're like, wow, this this character could be so one dimensional. It's such an interesting character dynamic. It's like here's this android. And his girlfriend, who's an app, you know, essentially, and you feel for it, like you feel like, oh, this feels like a real relationship. And then it's like, it's so sad. Like every time she gets crushed, I, and yeah. she, you know, right before down. she does, yeah. she tells him, she tells him he loves, she loves him. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, you know, like it really kind of just rips your heart out because she's such a likable character and you don't want anything bad to happen to her. I don't know. It's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, like, the thing that I found worse about it though, is yeah, I got that same reaction when she gets stomped out. When, when love kills joy, you you're feel right. Like, yeah. And it's, and she's crushed by Yeah. I feel love, horrible for her. You know? <laughs> and I feel a lot of sympathy for both her and for for Kay, but then it's worse later when he has that interaction with the Joy ad Joy after Kay. that, when he realizes that in fact Joy was just a program, she really wasn't real, and right. what he had with her wasn't real. That itself is that's crushing too. Yeah, and that's all yeah. done just on a uh, Gosling's face. The visual storytelling in this is uh, really great. It's, it's not characters saying like "I'm having the change of heart now," you know. Like you get, you get in that moment that uh-huh. what she says to him, it, it's all subtext. You know, like "You're a good boy, Joe," or something. You're like a good that. Joe. Yeah, when You're she a good uses Joe. his pet name, and then he realizes that everybody that owns a copy of Joy is being called a good Joe by their Joy. Right. That's when he realizes this wasn't real. I lost what I had and I didn't really have that to begin with. So I may as well try to help these people. Yeah, it's great. With the first Blade Runner, you know exactly how it's going to end pretty much from the get go. With this one, like I was like, well, well, you know, halfway through the Roy Batty's turn was unexpected. But yeah. Oh, sure. But I mean, like, you know, I guess the main like Deckard's role. You're like, oh, okay, there's not really going to be. Like, I'm sure he's going to hunt down Roy Batty. And, right. right. With this one, it's like, within the first 45 minutes, you're like, oh, Ryan Gosling's the baby born from Android. And then, like, because I remember when I was first watching it, I was like, are they really going to try to, like, make this a mystery? I was like, I already know. that. And then it's like, oh, no, he isn't. You know? <laughs> like That I thought was... I don't, I don't want to say it was, it was an unexpected choice. I did not see that one coming. I, right. I just thought, oh, they're going to do the thing where it turns out that it's him. Yeah. And he's going to be the son. Okay. That's okay. It's a chosen one story. Um, yeah. Kind of tired of that, but whatever. I'll forgive it because the first Blade Runner has its flaws and I still love it too. And they just go, nope, that's not true at all. It's actually yeah. someone else entirely. And they and Joy keeps telling Kay, she's like, you're special. You're special. And then he's not special. You know, but he still decides to help, you know, he like, pushes so. back against his programming, right. which I think is the tell that these guys 
replicants are in fact truly alive and they do have you know like i said earlier the lights are on right. Roy batty establishes that at the end of the first one because he's built for combat he's built to kill that's all he's ever known is is mm-hmm. combat and warfare and he did that for the entire four-year run right up until the last two minutes of his life right. he decides to rebel against his own programming and show mercy that might be my favorite scene of all time in a movie um it's when breathtaking he- when he catches her, uh, Deckard and he has the nail in the hand that he catches him with. And that yeah. is my all time favorite scene in any, it's not my favorite movie. It's, it's so funny. It's like you have favorite movies and you have favorite. That is my all time favorite scene in any movie there. I mean, the editing and the tension and the music when he lifts him up, it's like I get, I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about it. it and then the, the music kind of drops low during yep. this monologue, and yeah. we just hear that rain. It, it's, uh, it's so just, good. And the weird, the weird choice of having him holding a pigeon. It's like, why the fuck is bizarre. he holding that pigeon? But we know the moment that he dies because that pigeon gets released and he flies off, and it's just, right. uh, it's perfect. It's and the fact that he's like, I mean, it's it's all kind of summed up in that scene. Harrison Ford spits in his face like, he, you know, and then he still saves him and he saves him with like, I don't know if maybe there's like some Christ allegories going on there with the nail in his hand and stuff. And it, it, how vulnerable Harrison Ford is in that scene. And he's just at the whim of this. He could die if Roy Batty just decides to be to be inhuman. You yeah, know, in like, fact, Roy could have killed him a long time ago. Uh, right. That whole chase sequence through the hotel was just a cat and mouse thing. He was just torturing him. He could have finished him off at any point. Yeah, and, and uh, he he didn't. He uh, and that was that's why it's such a great turning point because we feel like this guy is sadistic. He could just murder him, but he's not. He wants to play with his food before he kills it. And then when it when he knows the clock is down to the last two minutes, he saves then, this guy. It's it's great. And abandon the the four-year lifespan in this, or they just don't mention it, and then maybe it's implied or something. I I never got the idea that there was a a clock running out on our Android characters in this movie. I I think that they were, uh, I think that they established that those are Nexus 6. Nexus 6, that's right. Roy Batty and the other three that were being hunted in the first movie are Nexus 6s, and they were... They were given the, the, the four-year lifespan. What's his name? Uh, Sapper Morton, Batista. Yeah. He's a, a, a seven. Gotcha. And he, I think he just has an unlimited lifespan. And Kay himself is, is like a nine or something, an eight or a nine, something like that. Gotcha. That whole scene with Roy Batty, that established that the lights are on, that there is a true consciousness and there is free will at work, despite what, what's built into you with your programming. And then in this movie, Kay has a similar moment. It's not quite as memorable because it doesn't have one of the cinema history's all-time great monologues to accompany right. it. Right. But it's all done on his face. You know, he realizes I'm, I didn't have that. I thought mm-hmm. that I had this. I did not. I really have nothing to lose. Now I'm going to go do the right thing and, and help these guys out and help Deckard meet his daughter for the first time. Yeah. He dies in the process. And, you know, I, I was surprised to find out that there's an actual debate amongst fans about whether or not Kay dies at the end. Guys, they play the tears and rain music as he dies on those yeah. steps. It's. I always kind of took it as he is dead because, A, I think he dies, but like, I'm pretty sure the snow stops melting on his face when it's landing on him in that shot. Interesting. That could just be a coincidence, but... Um, Interesting. Uh, you know, I could see them doing that because th- this movie does do a lot of... There were a couple of moments that on the rewatch, I realized like, that was neat and they didn't have to do that. 
when Sapper Morton dies. He dies off camera. He stands up. He comes at Kay in one final desperate attempt to stay alive. Kay fires twice. Mm-hmm. And the camera holds on Kay's face. And we hear the body fall. The camera shakes just ever so slightly when the body hits the ground. It's like they had a tripod set up. Right. And they actually dropped a big sack of potatoes on the ground. Right. And I'm sure that was done in post. I'm sure that the body hitting the floor sound effect was just some ADR. sound design stuff that mm-hmm. happened in post, I'm sure. And somebody somewhere, probably Denis Villeneuve himself, probably said, make the camera shake just yeah, a little the, bit. It's yeah, it's very the, it's it's very subtle, but it's definitely there. Can, can we talk about the love character a little bit and how fucking terrifying and sadistic she is? Yes. Uh, she. Yes. I mean, great villain. Great heavy. Wonderful villain. Yeah. yeah. And and to have her be the heavy, she's the muscle and she's, you know, in real life, she probably weighs 110. Yeah. Tiny what's little her, thing, I'm sure. What's her name, that actress? She's in... Um, she's Danish, I think, it, or... Sylvia Hoax. Yes. Sylvia Hawk, yeah. Yes. Um, great performance. She does this. It's almost like her wires are crossed a little bit because she's so cold-blooded and so... Like there's that great shot and it's, it's done without any words or anything. And it's, um, it's this big wide shot and she's just sitting at her desk and something happens. I think like a case snaps the antenna and she just stands up and walks away really fast. And it's like, that's that character. Like, and it's all done with no words. It's just action. And the way that she stands up and just immediately goes into action. And she's very prim and proper the way she carries herself, too. Yeah. She's very almost like Brant from uh, Big Lebowski. Philip yeah, Hoffman's yeah. character, the way she's every button is in the exact right place. Every hair yeah. is in the exact right place. And she's very prim and proper the way she goes about business with no flair whatsoever. Yeah. But she's the heavy. She's playing the part that maybe in another movie Dave Batista would have played. Right. Yeah. And she's so scary. Like it's almost like she her character's in denial that she's a that she's a replicant. And I mean, the scene where she confronts uh, Robin Wright's character there's like an undercurrent of anger when she's like crushing her hands with the glass and she's like i'm gonna tell on you you know like the way that right. it's like she, she's like this like petulant brown noser you know and mm-hmm. like but she's so dangerous i'm gonna tell and mr the, wallace that you tried to kill me yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tell mr it, like and that's yeah. the thing it's like she's like uh because mr wallace has this like uh or wallace has this like god complex and he says in one scene with love, like an angel should never come to God without a gift or something like that. Right. He refers so like, to replicants as his angels. As his angels. Times. And it's yeah. so she's like, she has this like weird subservient sort of desire with what, I don't know. She's such an interesting villain and character where it is, I mean, it could just be. I'm the bad guy here to stuff, but she brings this like creepy, unsettling quality to that character. And especially at the end where she fucks up Kay and then she says, I'm the best one before. And it's like, oh my God, you know, like it's. She's rebelling against her programming too. Right. But just in more subtle ways, she's not going against the goals of her programming, but she goes off road and she just kind of makes it up as she goes along. But that when she tells Joshi, when she tells Robin Wright's character, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell Mr. Wallace that you tried to kill me. That's that's not what she's programmed to do. 
Right. That's, that's her taking it upon herself. Yeah. That's her. So, again, tying into the themes of like, what is it? What is it to be human? Like, cause she has, she displays like very human emotions, like jealousy and like envy a lot of the time. Like, cause mm-hmm. she always seems like she has like a big grudge against Kay. It's her mission programming to um, stop him. But it seems very personal with her. Like everything is very personal with her. The way that they like establish how dangerous she is, like the scene when she goes into the records hall and yeah, when she gets Rachel's bones, yeah, and gets Rachel's bones, and then she kills what's his name, Coco. Like all these characters have really funny names. Like the scientist guy's name is Coco, right? <laughs> like, the guy that keeps getting cast in in Villeneuve movies yeah, as the weirdo, as a yeah. weirdo, yeah. yeah. And she like the way that she like breaks his neck is like, oh my god, you know, like she just like taps him on the back of the neck, and then his neck is like crushed yeah you know? like the whites of one of his eyes are just immediately red and he's yeah it's, blood. yeah it's just a horrible death it's, like, it's, it's horrifying yeah and yeah. the way i mean even the way that she goes out is like you know she's being held underwater just beneath the surface you know and you can see the like anger and jealousy on her face that she's being bested by an inferior model i guess i don't know or what she it's in, it's so interesting. It's uh, these these inhuman characters have very human reactions to things. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like really really great. I love the score in this movie. Um, mostly, it's adopting the Vangelis themes that are happening in the original one. I think that's how you say his name, Vangelis. I um, think so. But there's also interesting things that they do in this, like whenever they come into Los Angeles, there's that like, it sounds like a turbine. Yeah, it sounds like an engine. It's almost like the score blends into the sound design a lot to where it's like, is that the music or is that a machine that's going by? And it's awesome. Like, I mean, like whatever that sound is, is so cool and mechanical sounding. Yeah, it's it's really cool because it it blends the um, the soundscape of the world with the music, which I, I love when composers do that. Yeah, that happens a lot in Villeneuve movies. Yeah. We, we, in fact, I think we talked about it last episode with, with Arrival, with the mm-hmm. whale sounds and stuff. Yeah, and and just the main Blade Runner theme is, it, it plays at the end, at the very, very end, is so emotional and beautiful. I, I love it. Um, Apparently, they almost went in a totally different direction with the music before they finally realized, you know what, maybe we should look to the first film as and, and that score as being the jumping off point. For, yeah. For, for what we're doing here. I can't believe they took that circuitous route. Like I would just go straight to that. Yeah. As being a key. Like, it's feature. great. Yeah, yeah. It's that is synonymous with Blade Runner. That theme, oh, it's just tears and rain theme. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. I love the world of Blade Runner. Yeah. It's a type of future that I just is like pure cinema, you know, like, well, they've, and they being Ridley Scott and Villeneuve have both, publicly said that they would be fine with doing more in that I hope they do. with doing a third movie and Villeneuve himself said we don't even necessarily need to follow up with these characters it could just be in this world I, I, I'm so down Ted thanks for talking to me yeah appreciate it man take care we'll talk to you later yeah you too man see ya take care and that's it for this episode I'd like to thank my guest today Ted Ringeisen 
You can find Ted on Instagram at DinoBear2086. That's D-I-N-O-B-E-A-R-2086. You can also find us on Instagram at filmography underscore club underscore podcast. Give us a follow there. And while you're at it, feel free to give us a rating wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe subscribe even. Maybe leave us a review if you're feeling generous with your time. I'd also like to thank Michael Leeds, Will Fox, and Ross Warner. Filmography Club is produced by the hardworking folks that we own this town. For Filmography Club, I'm Jason Cavanis. Thanks for listening.